Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And since last month, we busted 10 common myths about the craft of TV writing. Today, we are busting 10 more myths, but this time all about the TV business itself. Some of those we've discussed before and others we're expanding on here for the first time. But before we get into some myth busting, we wanted to remind you that our 200th episode of Paper Team is coming up in just a few short weeks. That's right. We are going to be doing a live stream on Saturday, December 5th for a couple of hours. We'll be bringing back on some old guests, having some special co-hosts, and we'll be uh, talking everything about the podcast, about TV writing, business. We'll take live questions from viewers, uh, ones that people have sent in beforehand. It's going to be a really awesome time. Absolutely. We can't wait to talk all about TV writing to you live, uh, and that will be on my Twitch channel at twitch.tv slash TV calling. You can get all the information, including an ad to calendar button at paperteam.co slash 200. That's a 200. And also because this is our special 200th event live stream, we also want to hear from you, our listeners, about which episodes you loved, uh, about which moments you want us to highlight in that 200th episode, and also which guests you've enjoyed. And perhaps we can bring them back on for that Saturday, December 5th event. So uh, once again, that's at paperteam.co slash 200. Please fill out that survey if you can, or uh, send us an email at askatpaperteam.co, or tweet at us at tvcalling and at underscore NJ Watson. And we will see you on Saturday, December 5th. But before then, let's bust some myths. Hopefully the double whammy of a two episodes with this theme song will not shut us down on iTunes. <laughs> yes, we'll soon see how that goes. But yeah, it's myth busting time. Do you want to lead us into our very first myth? So number one is the myth that I'm too old or live too far away or don't have the time to be a writer or start a writing career. This is a really common concern for a lot of people. I think some people have, you know, done another career earlier in life and then they've realized that what they really want to do is write or, you know, they just don't live in LA or they live in some other country or some other state and they feel like the whole industry and the business is somewhere else and it's not possible to break in from the outside. And the reason that this is a myth is because it's simply simply not true. And there have been plenty of people that have managed to break in later in life and people that have broken in from not growing up around LA or not, you know, even living in LA. We've interviewed many of them on the podcast before, you know, Jay Haltham came to writing after already doing other stuff and being a playwright. And he didn't get his first staff job until later on. I'm not going to say that it makes things easier necessarily, but I honestly, sometimes it can, if you've had other experience in another career or something else that you can bring into writing, but maybe it's just uh, another obstacle in the way, but that certainly doesn't mean that it's impossible. In my mind, there are kind of two factors that we're talking about here. One is the more breaking in aspect, getting a job in the industry. And the other is more your value as a writer, especially as a TV writer. And when it comes to the second part, there's no denying that having experience, especially professional experience in something that is actually unrelated 
to the industry. Let's say you're a doctor or a lawyer or uh, someone who's worked in the tech field, something completely unrelated, uh, that adds tremendous value to you as a TV writer, as someone to sell yourself to be on staff on a medical show or a law show or any other show. So this tremendous value in having lived that experience. And that's the kind of experience you can only acquire by being older. You know, if uh, you're just a 20-year-old, 25-year-old coming out of USC film school, you just do not have that life experience, let alone that experience that isn't entertainment related. Now, in terms of the first part, that's more the business side. I do agree to some extent that it is slightly more difficult to break into the industry if you're not in LA or New York. However, as we've talked about before, there are plenty of ways of putting yourself out there, notably, obviously, the different fellowships, the different writing programs, the different competitions, Contest, Austin, NYTVF, all those different venues where you can showcase your writing skill and uh, put your name out there. Coming to writing later in life or living somewhere outside of LA might put some financial restrictions or obstacles in place that might make it a little bit harder to get there in the first place. You might have a family that you have to take care of. So you can't, you know, be an assistant and work your way up that way and that kind of thing. But, you know, those are not the only ways to get in being a writer. And like Alex said, you know, fundamentally, we are writing about our experiences in life. We're writing about things that happen. We're not uh, writing about writing. (laughs) We're not writing about the experience of living in LA and being in a writer's room. You need to have experienced things in your life so you can bring those genuine experiences to the room and draw on them and impart that into the the characters and the worlds that you are writing. So uh, the more things that you have done and the more you've put yourself out there and lived, the better a writer you're going to be anyway. And another thing to address, which is kind of the elephant in the room here, is because of the pandemic, there is a paradigm shift that's been happening in writers' rooms, in TV, in the way writers work. Because of that paradigm shift, I would contend that it's easier now to get a job outside of LA that's entertainment-related than it has ever been, because most rooms are remote. And I mean, this is my own personal take on it, but even you know, if we had a vaccine today, it would take probably another year for every or most people to get vaccine. But even then, I would feel like a lot of people are now used to working from home. So I could definitely envision even in a quote unquote post pandemic, post COVID world, most writers rooms to still stick with two days in the writers room and three days work from home. And even in that capacity, I feel like they could expand their circles and meet people outside of just being an alley proper. The industry keeps evolving, keeps shifting, especially in this pandemic world. Yeah. And one more thing to keep in mind is that not all television writing takes place in a traditional full-time nine-to-five room. There are so many opportunities to write freelance, to do development projects that aren't a nine-to-five job, but you're just working on it in your own time around your other responsibilities and just taking on episodes, things like that. So there are always ways that you can work around that without being physically somewhere in LA going into a writer's room Monday through Friday. And just when it comes to the actual writing of it, obviously none of it is location bound. You can pretty much write a TV pilot or a TV spec anywhere on earth. All you need is really a laptop or a computer, a keyboard, and um, I guess Final Draft or any uh, software that you prefer. So really the fact that you live in LA, New York, wherever, rather not living in those places doesn't stop you from working on that pilot and putting your name out there. There are plenty of venues online now where you can network and you can reach out to people in 
LA or in New York and build those relationships even before you decide to make the move to LA. You can visit LA or do those things. I mean, again, in a post-pandemic world, but now more than ever, people are willing and uh, happy to take those meetings virtually wherever you are. So just because you don't live in LA doesn't mean it's the end. Yeah, more than ever, it's possible to break in and work from outside of LA. So take advantage of that. All right. The second myth about the tea business that we want to bust in this episode is that there is only one clear path to becoming a TV writer. For example, the assistant route, an agency fellowship, or so forth. Or I need to really work in the entertainment business to break in. And that's also false as we, I mean, this is part of what we just talked about. A lot of people, especially professional TV writers, have had second or rather first careers beforehand before becoming a TV writer. And to be a TV writer, sure, it helps to be an assistant, it helps to be in a fellowship and so forth. But so many TV writers out there, especially again uh, in the era of social media, in the era of uh, competitions and other venues where you can put yourself out there, can break in through his connections, through those relationships, and through those scripts that break through. And so that's why there's no real clear path. I mean, if you interview any TV writer, they will always tell you a different story than the next TV writer that you interview. Case in point, just listen to 100 plus episodes of Paper Team. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you know, none of those traditional paths to being a TV writer are guaranteed. There's no guarantee that if you go and work as an assistant at an agency that you're going to happen to meet some writers and showrunners who are going to hire you onto their show through that or make enough connections that those things will just happen for you. There's no guarantee that if you are a writer's assistant or a showrunner's assistant, that's going to lead to you getting staffed, especially these days. It's taking longer and longer for people to actually be brought onto staff or be given those freelance episodes. And sometimes there are showrunners who just don't even promote from within, and it's just not a thing that they do. And even fellowships, you know, even if you've gone through that incredible pathway to get there and been selected out of these tens of thousands of people uh, and you complete the fellowship, again, there's no guarantee you're getting staffed on a show. All of them can certainly help, but the things that they're really getting you are relationships and connections are probably the most important thing that all of those traditional paths are getting you and are what is actually going to get you in the room in the end. And then the quality of your writing, which is something that only you can control. And no matter how many jobs you've worked or where you've been, that all comes down to you. And if you're a good enough writer, it'll work for you. Exactly. That point that you just made, Nick, cannot be overstated. The fact that maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, you could kind of bank on the idea of being a writer's assistant to rise the ranks and be staffed within a couple of seasons. That might have been true maybe 10, 15 years ago. But in 2020, 2021, and so forth, that's not the reality that we live in. And it's kind of too complex to really go into too much details right now. But the short version of it is that being an assistant is not that guaranteed. The first lottery, as I call it, is getting or being able to get those writer's assistant positions and getting in a position to be in a writer's room. But the second lottery is being in a room that values upward mobility, that values you as a creative person whilst being an assistant and gives you those opportunities. And that really is the luck of the draw based on A, the shorter, B, the makeup of the room, C, the studio, D, the network, E, opportunities next season. Is uh, someone leaving? Is someone coming in? 
all those things, all those are factors you cannot control, really. I mean, you can control taking this job over that job, but when you're in the thick of it, when you are on staff in a room, you cannot control the destiny of that room. You can't control if that show is going to get canceled or renewed. You can't control if the showrunner helps their assistants or doesn't. Those are factors that are out of your control. So be aware that just because you're a writer's assistant doesn't mean you're going to be staffed within one or two seasons. And conversely, because of that, just because you're not a writer's assistant doesn't mean the door is closed for you. So uh, just be aware that there are plenty of opportunities out there. Just work on your craft. Yeah. And it's entirely possible to have those jobs and also not build the relationships that you need out of them because you're not doing the right thing. You're not trying to forge genuine friendships with other support staff, the writers on the staff, things like that. You're not kind of going an extra mile and, and offering to read their scripts or doing nice things for them. You know, like if you just kind of have the job and sit there with your hands out expecting them to put a script in it, that's not going to happen either. So ultimately, whether you have one of these coveted jobs or not, it's going to come down to your ability to genuinely forge real relationships and also work on your craft, like you said, Alex. That actually leads us into our next myth, which is that networking slash who you know is more important than good writing. And that's just painfully false, especially when it comes to breaking in and having a long-term career. If you think about just the short game of, I just need one job and be done with it, then maybe I can maybe see the argument of networking outweighing a script. But if you look closely at that opportunity that you're being given to be on staff or working somewhere, you need to have that sample to back up that claim. So even in that capacity, even if you are friends with a so-and-so showrunner, you still need to have a sample to not just sell on that genre, but to also sell on the network, the studio, all the people that need to say yes to you before you become a staffed TV writer. And so that is why having good writing, even if you have a sort of the easiest path possible to be on staff, you still need to have a good sample. And that's not even talking about 99% of people, which is just, I don't really know that many people, but you're still going to bank on writing that amazing sample that's going to break through the clutter and is going to be going viral in that smaller circle. Yeah, exactly. If I had to choose only one of those things that's going to get you a job as a writer, I would say it's good writing. You know, you can network all you want. You could, you may even get some jobs, uh, you know, assistant jobs, that kind of thing through knowing somebody or through, you know, straight up nepotism or whatever, if your family member works there. But if you don't have the skills to back it up, then you're not going to get much further than that. You know, there's so much competition that you really need both of these things working in tandem. You need to be able to have a really rock solid script ready and you need to be putting yourself out there and meeting the right people. And then those two things together will work. You know, you can't just expect one or the other to get you all the way. Exactly right. Just as we just said, you can't expect to have a job in the industry and be staffed off of it. The same holds true with having a network of people and having relationships and then not leveraging those with actually relatable, compelling samples. And I feel like that's one of the key differences that separates people who break in or are able at least to break in or put themselves in a position to break in as opposed to other people is most people kind of almost go all in on one or the other as opposed to do what Nick said, which is working both of those issues in tandem. You need to both network and have a good assortment of samples. And like Nick said, I would probably pick the sample over the networking, especially when it comes to having a career as a TV writer. Again, we're not talking about having just that one job. We're talking about having a longstanding career. And in that capacity, whether that's trying to find a rep or a job as an assistant or on staff 
or meeting with executives, general meetings, pitch meetings, all of that. You do need samples at the end of the day. You do need that amazing pilot, even if it's just one. I don't believe you can survive with one, but even if we believe for a second, Strawman's argument here, that you only need one sample, it needs to be an amazing sample to get you through the door. It cannot just be your connection to that human being to get you that career in the long run. Myth number four is that people are trying to keep new writers out of the industry. This one is something that you hear a lot and kind of, you know, writer Twitter or Reddit and those kind of areas. There's this perception that there are these Hollywood gatekeepers, whether they are script readers for competitions or companies or managers or agents, or just some sort of shadowy cabal that are <laughs> plotting against new writers. There really does seem to be this perception that People are actively don't want new writers to come into the industry and take their jobs and be competitive and that sort of thing. When realistically, the truth is almost the opposite. People are always looking for great new writers. They're looking for incredible new original TV pilots and series and feature films and ideas. Everyone that works in the creative side of the industry is usually excited by interesting new talent and scripts that are coming out, whether it's an agent or a manager or a producer or an executive. No one's going to read a script and go, this is too good. I have to shred it. <laughs> and I couldn't possibly, you know, if this person gets into the industry, they'll ruin us all. No, what they're actually going to do is go, hey, I want to sign this person or, hey, I want to option this. I want to do this. Really great material and really great talent will always show out. Even from writers, I don't think anyone's sitting there going, going, I don't want any other writers to join the industry because then they'll take my jobs. It really isn't a one-to-one -one thing like that. You're not competing for the exact same positions and the exact same types of things that you're writing. You know, people are just generally happy to know other awesome writers who they can be friends with and uh, who can do their own thing and be successful. And they're happy for each other's success. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that myth kind of goes hand in hand with this idea that the entertainment business is a zero-sum game. There's only so many spots to fill, and so that's why everybody's in constant competition, and so that's why you want to keep people out of it. But as was just mentioned, if you are an executive or an agent or manager or someone like that, you are always constantly looking for the next amazing thing, amazing person to get those meetings, to get that pitch in, to buy that script from, and so forth. So they're constantly on the lookout for those people as opposed to being complacent. And the same thing holds true for writers. Writers want to network the same as you and I. They want to build those connections and meet people because, I mean, not to sound too uh, esoterical about it, what is the point of our experiences on this earth? It's to meet people, to tell stories and so forth. And so that can only happen when you meet more and more people. Uh, if you're being pedantic about it, you can say, well, there's only a finite amount of assistant positions or a finite amount of staff writer positions and a finite amount of shows on the air. And that that may be true on a literal perspective, but just in terms of your career, you'll never bump against too few spots for you to enter, as opposed to just meeting more people and building those bridges so that later on you can leverage or at least try to leverage those relationships so that, or those connections and those experiences to get to that next position. And so that's the way you should look at it as opposed to, this is mine, this is my territory, everybody else keep out of it. 
Yeah, if your material is being rejected either by competitions or script readers or assistants working on agents or managers' desks, I can guarantee you it's not because it's too good. (laughs) You know, it doesn't necessarily mean it's because it's terrible either or that you're never going to succeed as a writer. There's so much subjectivity with competitions and readers and that kind of thing. It just might not have been something that they thought was good, but someone else might read it and they think that it's great. So, you know, no one's going in there with this kind of mindset of like, I need to eliminate any potential threats or any any new blood that could come into the industry. That's, you know, honestly, just not a thing that's happening. And I would encourage you to cultivate your mindset such that if you are experiencing rejection or your material is not quite making the cut to try and find out what feedback you can and try to improve yourself as a writer. That's the way you're going to get in is by making you better, not by kind of taking it out on other people and thinking that all these external obstacles are in the way uh, you should focus internally on how you can most improve. Absolutely. And to that idea, if someone rejects your script, it's not necessarily because of the quality of it, although that could certainly be in consideration. A lot of the time, especially when you're at the point where your scripts are being sent out by your representatives, who presumably like your samples, they may be rejected because the executive that is rejecting you or the studio or the location where that sample is may not be compatible with that particular sample. That doesn't mean they're necessarily incompatible with you as a person, but in that particular moment, they are not looking for what you're sending them. And so that's what it means. There's no sort of alternative motive. There's no conspiracy theory here. It just is what it is. So that's why you got to look inward as opposed to outward. You got to figure out, okay, if this sample is not good, then I'm going to fix it. Or if this sample is not necessarily what they're looking for, maybe they're going to be looking for something else. Or if this sample is not what X is looking for, maybe Y is looking for it. Uh, And so that's the way you got to look at it is to essentially pivot and be malleable as a creative and as a TV writer. Yeah, I think a lot of people have had the experience that a particular script that didn't make it past the first round of a competition or fellowship or whatever was the script that won another competition or got them staffed in the first place. So, you know, don't stress too much about that. There isn't any kind of conspiracy going on. Just focus on you and what you can actually change and affect, and that will get you a lot farther. Speaking of conspiracy theories, let's move on to our next myth, uh, myth number five, and that is that people will steal your ideas. And so you should always make them sign NDAs or copyright every single draft. Uh, You know, I have a watermark every time I send an email to Nick about this podcast. Yes, I'm going to start saying copyright at the end of every sentence now. (laughs) Copyright. (laughs) That's obviously uh, false. Uh, Like we just said, there's no conspiracy theories. Sure, it's possible that someone out there is going to have the same idea as you. In fact, that's very likely because ideas are not copyrightable, but on top of that, ideas are a dime a dozen. It's not a magical egg that you got to protect from someone. It just is an idea. And that's why you have parallel ideas, parallel development, like Armageddon or Deep Impact or Ants and A Bug's Life and all those different examples. That just is the world we live in where people sometimes have the same ideas. And People are not out there trying to steal ideas. It's actually cheaper for a studio to just buy a script from someone and then hire a new writer to completely overhaul it, but still have the IP rather than steal someone's idea and potentially be liable and be litigated against for stealing that person's idea. It doesn't make sense on a real level. So that's why nobody's really trying to steal your ideas. Now, you might ask, well, what about those uh, fellowships that 
you know, make me sign NDAs and other release forms when I send my script. Aren't they going to steal my ideas? Well, once again, no, they're not. They're just trying to protect their asses against people trying to believe that that studio, that network, or that show is stealing their idea because once upon a time, they read that spec sample. That's not the real world we live in. Yeah. Unfortunately, I think when people get too paranoid about this, you end up doing yourself a real disservice and you come off as honestly an amateur. People won't take you seriously if you insist that, you know, every time somebody reads your script, they sign an NDA. Uh, NDAs are really only used for legitimate industry projects that are maybe attached to some sort of IP like Star Wars or something else that a company is developing that they don't really want to get out to the town and people to know about at this point. So if they're talking to writers about working on the project or anyone else, they will make sure that they say, you know, you can't talk about this until we've done our own like public press release because we don't want it to get out. Nobody is paying that level of attention to whatever particular sample you are working on. And by making them sign an NDA, you're actually doing yourself another disservice because what you want is for people to read a script and then go tell everyone about it. You want them to tell as many people as possible about the idea for this script and how great the script was and how they should talk to you and read it because that's how you're going to get noticed in the industry. That's how you're going to get meetings with executives, with the showrunners and that kind of thing. Why would you possibly want to show a script to somebody one at a time and make sure nobody else ever hears about it? Another thing uh, to mention in terms of the professional side of it, until a show is in production, those NDAs are not happening. Like, unless you are working obviously on a Disney project or some high IP that requires NDAs even on the development stage, most shows, until the room is fully crafted and uh, essentially salaries are being paid, most rooms don't have that NDA set up until much later down the line. So, definitely not at the point where someone is reading someone else's script. Again, for example, let's say you're repped and you want those reps to send your samples to NBC and Warner Brothers and elsewhere. You're not going to be asking your reps, hey, do you mind if when you send that script, also forward an NDA so that the executive or the assistant that reads it signs it just in case they want to steal my idea. That's preposterous. So the same holds true with you. Even if you don't have a rep, you want people to read your samples. You want the word to be spread about how amazing of a pilot you just wrote. And you don't want to be encumbered by, oh, hold on, I need to forward that email with that PDF. But first, do you mind uh, also signing that NDA before you read it or before you forward it to someone? I just need to know exactly who's in the loop here. Uh, That defeats the whole purpose of writing those samples. And that is to get the word out there and to get you represented or well-known. Yeah, it's almost a little egotistical that you believe that your idea and your writing is so incredibly good that the second somebody else hears it, they're going to want to steal it and write it for themselves. I think that's another thing that's going to make a bad impression of you to other people. That's just simply not true. (laughs) I think that you would rather people be celebrating you for your writing and your ideas and sharing that wide with the world rather than uh, being concerned about somebody else taking it and stealing it. Because honestly, if somebody else could take this idea and write it better than you, then you probably didn't do that great a job of it in the first place. You need to be writing something that is very much you and only you could do. And on top of all of that, as Alex said before, you can't even copyright or protect this idea even if you wanted to. It really is just about the execution of it exactly. The only thing you could possibly actually sue someone over is if they literally took your script and copied it word for word and tried to sell it themselves, and that pretty much never happens. And to be clear, if you want that peace of mind, then sure, register that finished pilot or sample with the copyright office or the guild just to give you that peace of mind. But besides that, there's no point in 
essentially putting under threat someone else for reading your script. Nobody wants to take that risk. If someone, a new writer, or to say, hey, do you want to read my sample? And for some reason I say yes. And if the next email I get is an NDA, then I'm going to say, actually, never mind. It doesn't behoove me to spend my time and my effort and my energy reading someone else's script if they don't even trust me enough to keep that for myself or to get my feedback on that script. And instead, they're worried about me potentially stealing something from it. And that's why they want me to sign an NDA or something else. It doesn't make sense even on a basic reader level. So be really aware of how that comes across if you need to make people sign NDAs or copyright every draft. Yeah. People already have very limited time in this industry. They're doing you a favor by taking half hour to an hour to to read your script. Don't make it any harder for them than necessary. And on that note, let's move on to our next myth to bust. Myth number six is that all you need is one great sample or script to succeed. Now, obviously, that's not true. Uh, It is true that one really great script can open a lot of doors for you, can get you attention in the industry. It might even get you an agent or a manager. And yes, it might even get you staffed on a show. You could be so lucky that the first script you ever written does all of that for you. But you can't just then sit and rest on your laurels and expect to have a career as a writer based off of one script. You always need to be writing. You always need to be coming up with new ideas. You need at least a a couple of new scripts a year to give to your reps to keep putting out there to keep those meetings happening and to keep people interested and then eventually you want to start selling shows too you can't just write one thing and expect that one day you're going to sell this and be the showrunner and that's going to be your whole career and you'll be set for life It's a bit akin to that earlier myth we talked about where there was allegedly one clear path to becoming a TV writer, like being an assistant and banking on that. It's the same idea here for samples. You have one great sample. Okay, cool. You may be able to luck out and win the lottery by being staffed on that sample, but that's extremely rare. All the hoops you had to jump through to get staffed off of that one sample, I guarantee you, it's probably got to be a green light on everything. It's got to be the amount of connections you had to uh, be able to be read, the amount of connections to be able to get a meeting out of it, potentially even have reps off of it, and then uh, getting shorter meetings, and then uh, getting studio and network meetings, all of it off of one sample. The odds of that are incredibly rare, and the people that have done it uh, have been able to do it in part because of a network of people around them, plus also probably some entertainment professional experience behind them as well. So just to go back to the myth that all you need is one great sample, I mean, again, that is false just in terms of a career, as we just said. It is false also on the more immediate sample of trying to be represented, trying to break into this industry. You don't want to rely on one sample. You want to show versatility. That doesn't mean you need to write, you know, like a 20-minute animated short and then a 90-minute super dramatic movie and then combine those two as your portfolio. It does mean you need to show that you are actually well-rounded as a creative. It means that you need to show different one hours or half hour, whatever genre you're in and show some cohesive, you know, samples. And that does mean more than one sample. That means you got to show your ability to execute more than the one time. Because when you're in the writer's room on staff, you are hopefully going to be writing more than one script. And in fact, even if you're writing zero scripts in the room, you're going to be pitching more than one idea. All those things accumulate to showcase the fact that you are a TV writer to be staffed or at least represented by someone. And that goes beyond just having one great sample, but having a portfolio, an ensemble of different samples and different scripts. Yeah, that's a great point. And you also need fresh material regularly to stay relevant in the industry. Like we said before, 
you know, once you've met with an executive once, they already know you, they have busy days. They're not just going to keep meeting with you every three months just to say, hi, how are you? Let's have a coffee. They will meet with you again if you have a brand new sample that they can read, something new that's happened. Maybe you just got staffed. You can actually like update them on things that are happening in your career. But usually that is spurned on by your execs being like, hey, here's this brand new pilot script. Everyone should read it. See if you're interested in developing it, optioning it, working with them on that. And even if not, then you can have a chat and talk about this script and talk about where they're at. It's kind of like a new business card or something that you can send out to people every now and then to be like, hey, remember me? I'm still writing and here's where I'm at. And the same is true for, you know, specs too. You need to constantly be updating those as well. You can't just keep sending out a, a Fraser spec that you wrote uh, back in the, <laughs> the late 90s or thing and expect that uh, everyone's going to to read that and want to put you on their staff. You mentioned business card. I also compare them to lottery tickets or just the fact that every new script you write can open more and more doors and potentially get you staffed. But that's not just the only goal. It's also to expose yourself to other people and the town at large. And much like we said before, where some executives may not respond well to a particular sample because it's not in their voice, maybe the next sample that you write will resonate with them and then they'll take that meeting. So having that constant ability to reintroduce yourself to other people, whether that's people you've already met or new people, that is an opportunity you cannot squander by just banking on that one allegedly great sample. I say allegedly because it could be great, but in a year or two years, nobody's going to remember it. So also keep that in mind. You got to be constantly fresh. Even if you're on staff, people who are staffed also don't rely on that one sample. In fact, I'm sure some do if you're, again, being pedantic and say, well, I know this one person. But generally speaking, people even on staff, they have to write new and new samples to then get staffed if their show gets canceled or something like that. They've got to be able to maneuver themselves and their career forward. All right, let's move on to myth number seven. And that is that once I get an agent or manager, they will do all the work for me. And that's uh, obviously false for many reasons. One of which is that an agent may be able to get you some meetings, but they're not the ones creating the job opportunities out there. They're not the ones necessarily creating the narrative about you. I mean, you want them to do that, but they're not necessarily the one that are going to open you all the doors. You still got to bank on your network of people to then leverage and get a, your agent or your manager to get those meetings with them. That's essentially how you build that career, those relationships, that network of people. It's not going all in on this manager and crossing your fingers and hope that one day your phone is going to ring. It's really about harnessing all the people that you know and then combining it with the power and the ability of your reps to put you out there. Yeah, there's a common adage that the reason that agents or managers take 10% of your pay is that they do 10% of the work. So that means that you still need to be doing 90% of the rest of that work, which is putting yourself out there, which is writing new material constantly. They don't just kind of take over the entire business of making sure that you're getting work. They are another tool in your arsenal. They are another weapon that you have to be able to find jobs when you get jobs to be able to negotiate good rates and credits and things like that for you. But the vast majority of writers still find work through their own personal connections and through people they've worked with in the past. It's somewhat rare, especially for lower level writers, for an agent to find the opportunity for them and vouch for them and get them on staff entirely on their own. And the writer was just kind of sitting at home tapping away and the agent goes, hey, I got you a job. 
Right. And most of them might be able to score that goal uh, if we're going after the, you know, the football. And by football, I mean football, not American football analogy. They might be able to score that final goal. But think about the work that that ball has had to go through throughout the entire pitch before getting to that person to score the goal. And even in that analogy, honestly, I would say that you are really the final score by taking that final, you know, short meeting or whatever it is. But even if we give that 10% credit to the agent, they really are there to use use their belly to help you forward, but 10% of 0% is still zero. So you still got to bring something to the table, whether that's your network, your samples, your connections, your experience, all those things that they can then use their own network to plus one you as opposed to just, all right, putting all my chips into this one person and then hoping for the best. That's not really how agents and managers work. They really only take clients if they can see the light out of the tunnel in a, in a relatively short amount of time. They can see, okay, this person has potential because they have a great group of people, they have great samples, and maybe I know XYZ who are very interested in that kind of writing or that kind of genre or that kind of sample or that kind of writer. So those are things to keep in mind when you are looking out for reps also. Uh, those are more tactical elements to you know their job, but it's also important to know that just because you have that rep, whether that's a manager or an agent, that doesn't mean you're set. In fact, that's really more incentive for you to work harder on your networking to then channel that and then hand it over to the agent or manager to score that final goal. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Agents and managers sort of legitimize you in people's eyes, but you know, what they bring you is simply opportunity. They can give you the opportunity to get your stuff in the hands of the right people, the executives, the producers, the showrunners. They can even bring you the opportunity to work on a show or get a freelance script. However, it's going to be up to you ultimately to execute on that. You need to be able to go in and take a really great general meeting and impress that producer or exec so that they want to keep talking to you and they want to keep reading your material. You need to write a really great sample script so that they can actually send it to these people in the first place and have those people enjoy it. And then once you do get a job, you need to really execute on being a great writer in the room, writing great drafts of scripts. Agents can't help you once you're in there. They can't do that work for you. That's entirely up to you. They're just helping you find the opportunities in the first place. If we're going with my uh, football analogy, they're probably closer now that I look at it much more to a midfielder than uh, necessarily uh, someone who's going to score the goals. Yeah, you're the striker. You're all the people. You're also the goalie. (laughs) (laughs) People in the stands, you're everybody. Anyway, nonetheless, it is important to note that that agent or that manager is there to help you create those opportunities and you're ultimately there to leverage that. But if you're not ready for that agent or that manager with those samples, with those connections, then that representative is wasted on you in a little bit. And that's part of why uh, people part ways. And that's part of why people don't get represented is potentially that rep, whether correct or incorrectly, believe that that client may not be worth their time in that particular moment. All right, that brings us to myth number eight, which is that you should write new samples based on what executives or even your reps are asking for. Now, the reason this is wrong is because you should really be writing what your voice is, the things that you want to write, the kinds of stories that uh, you would actually want to be working on shows, whether that's a drama or a comedy or horror, supernatural, whatever it happens to be. You need to be writing the stuff that you actually want to have a career in so that that can be a sample to get you on that or so that you can potentially 
sell that show and run it yourself or you know, be the creator of that. There's no point chasing these trends or these uh, open writing assignments that don't drive at all with what you're trying to do in your career. If you're a gritty, dark horror writer and you just happen to know an executive at Hallmark who wants a light Christmas movie, then you probably shouldn't take six months out of your life to go and write this Christmas movie and take it to them and go, hey, is this good? Because there's no guarantee they're even going to buy that. And ultimately, it won't help you in the long run in your career. And on top of that lack of creative fulfillment, just on a personal level, why would I spend that amount of time on this project that isn't what I want to see on screen? On top of that, even if we say, okay, I'm meeting at a company, or I think I'm meeting at a company that wants a specific kind of script based similarly or adjacent to the kind of writing that I want, it might also be inadvisable to do that specific sample for them in that particular moment because of other samples that you have or the time. Now, in the magical fairy tale land where you can snap your fingers and have that Christmas Hallmark movie delivered within 24 hours after learning that that's what they're looking for, then sure, maybe uh, consider that. But we live in the real world here where it doesn't take 24 hours to really create an amazing real script for, I mean, not about Hallmark, but at least for other places. So that's really where the difficulty lies in it. It is a bit of a zero-sum game in this specific arena where you only have so much time to dedicate to a specific sample and multiple samples. And so you got to be very proactive and very specific about where you are pouring your limited energy into, whether that's with networking or the craft. And when you're pouring your energy into the craft, make sure that it is a craft or a script rather that you want to be proud of. That is the kind of script that you want to produce potentially or represent you as a person because it is a business card or a lottery ticket or whatever it is, but it's definitely something that representative of you as a person. And so that's in part why you need to base those decisions of, you know, which sample I should write next in major part based on what you want to write in that moment. Now, obviously that doesn't mean you should not listen to executives or reps in particular instances, but that's all it is. It's advice, right? Like they're representing you, you're not representing them. So be aware that when they're suggesting, hey, right now, I think a lot of people are looking for uh, some contained sci-fi thriller on a spaceship under a $50,000 budget, you're like, wait, $50,000? That's not much money. But anyway, you know, a low budget movie. In that world, you know, you need to assess your ability to execute on that script on a limited time. And if that's really what you want to do, as opposed to working on the temple that you've been working on for a while. So really be aware of that time effort that goes into writing scripts. Yeah, I think it makes sense from an executive's perspective to always be asking for what they want. And eventually they will find writers who uh, that is their wheelhouse and that's what they'll provide for them. I don't think anyone's really expecting somebody who isn't interested in those projects at all to go out of their way to take a stab at it just to see if it will happen because the effort to reward ratio for that is non-existent. So one thing I think you need to be careful of, and we've talked about this in the podcast before, is reps who are trying to push you in a certain direction as to the stuff that you should write or what your next thing should be. Now, a lot of the time it's going to be good natured and it's going to be them trying to round out your portfolio. If you're an animation writer and you have an adult animation sample, maybe they're like, hey, what do you think about doing a kid's 6 to 11 sample that will open some more doors for you if that's something that you're interested in writing? That's totally fine. You know, if you're a comedy writer, you might want to have a multicam and a single cam. You might even prefer to work on single cam, but like, what's the harm in having that there? But that's very different to a rep, especially 
when you're in those early conversations with reps where they're maybe hip pocketing you or thinking about repping you and they have a hole in their roster that they want to fill and they really need this hard sci-fi person when really you're more of a rom-com writer, but you know, maybe you could do sci-fi, uh, then them trying to fit that square peg into the round hole is going to be the worst possible thing for both of you because it's not ultimately what you want to do in your career. You're both going to have the wrong expectations. And as you get further down the line with them and they're pushing you to keep writing more and more sci-fi and you're like, I just want to write another rom-com. It's just going to be a lot of wasted time for both parties. So don't feel like you need to jump at the opportunity just because it's there and force yourself into something that you don't really want to be doing. And to the idea, whether that's uh, when you're meeting those reps or you are in a relationship with them uh, at some point and they're trying to make you, quote unquote, write those scripts or fit a certain box and it doesn't quite work out for you, that's a huge red flag that on top of your incompatibility on the script, there's also a huge red flag here in terms of the business that maybe they are not able to deliver on selling you as that rom-com writer. Maybe they don't know anybody at Hallmark or wherever it is that you want to go to to sell those scripts or to get those meetings or to be staffed on that rom-com show. Maybe all the people they know are those sci-fi people. And so you're stuck in that box of, well, I'm read by the people that want me to write sci-fi, but maybe it's not because I should be writing sci-fi. It's more because they don't know how to sell anybody but a sci-fi writer. So be aware of those red flags on the rep side. Next is myth number nine, and that is that writing for a showrunner or being on a TV staff means I'm going to be surrendering my voice, my unique, beautiful voice to the room. And that is a myth because when you're on staff, first of all, you've been selected to be on staff for your specific, particular, special set of skills. That is either your ability to write character craft, your ability to deliver dialogue, your structure work, whatever it is that makes you unique. So they want your voice in the room for that particular reason. But on top of that, people, I think, confuse surrendering your voice or having you know your voice uh, disappear in the ether with your ability to adapt to a room, your ability to adapt your voice to that of a shorter, to that of a writer's room, to assimilate in that collective writer's room. And that doesn't mean you give up your unique, uh, beautiful voice. That just means you change it slightly to be more malleable to that showrunner to deliver that script or those shows or that episode or whatever it is that mimics that particular show. And so that's why you got to get out of that ego thinking, all right, uh, if I get on staff, I won't be able to pitch my ideas or I'll just be a drone or a cog in the machine or something like that. You will still have your voice. Even in those scripts, you will just have to be able to be malleable and adapt it to that particular show or genre. Yeah, exactly. The reason you're being hired in the room is for your unique voice and what you can bring to the table, whether it's a real uh, focus on characters or some particular experience you've had that you can then bring to the conversation. If they wanted somebody who just sounded exactly the same and had all the same strengths and weaknesses as them, then they'd probably just write them all themselves. So you know, there's, there's a really good reason why you're being brought in there. And you just need to make sure that you're writing the same show and you're on the same page. But that doesn't mean that you can't put your own little unique spin on it in the way that you write and the things that you're offering. 
Right. And that will usually be pretty apparent in those shorter meetings. Uh, early on, when you're being uh, hired for a staff writer position, you will be uh, having those discussions that it doesn't have to be as obvious as what is the one skill that you bring to my writer's room. But when that shorter has read your script, when they're taking that meeting, when they're talking with you about potentially being on staff in that room, you will be talking about those things in that conversation, in that quote unquote interview you will be discussing and gauging where you stand in terms of what you bring to the table. And hopefully by now, you should be aware of what you bring to the table because to get to the point of a Toronto meeting, you should be able to sell yourself as a creative, as a writer. You should be able to sell your unique experience, whether that's a professional experience or your craft with dialogue or character or plot or whatever it is. And so when you're on staff, it just means you'll be able to hone in on that particular set that you have but also uh, be malleable to the collective, to other people around you pitching those ideas and build on top of one another. Because the writer's room is a collective experience at the end of the day. It's not just 10 individual writers, but at the same time, it's not one amorphous voice. All right. And that brings us to our last myth, number 10, which is that all you need to do is get staffed once and your career as a TV writer is set. Now, I think this is one of the most kind of pervasive myths that a lot of people believe because you're so focused on breaking in, breaking in. That's always the goal is like, I'm going to write my thing. I'm going to meet the people I'm going to, but once I get on that show, now I'm a TV writer and now I'm set for life. And, you know, a lot of people don't think past that moment because you're so intensely focused on just getting that first job and officially being able to call yourself a working TV writer. Now, the reality of this is that, uh, a lot of people will get their first staff writing job and might never get a second. It might take them several years to get their second job. It's really not smooth sailing from there on out. And I'm sorry if that's disappointing to some people or is a bit of a bummer, but the fact is that you always need to be hustling. You always need to be on the grind. You need to be writing new material, meeting new people, never stopping and resting on your laurels. Unfortunately, it comes with a lot of instability there. Even, you know, really successful professional writers who have won Emmys have had periods of time where they didn't work for a year or two or longer, periods where they've worked nonstop and then uh, just had a big gap or something has happened and they haven't been able to continue that. If you want a stable nine to five job, being a professional TV writer is not it. It's a contract gig kind of job, and you need to be prepared for that. And the truth is that whatever level you are in, whether you are aspiring to be a TV writer, whether you are an assistant, whether you are a staff writer, whether you are a mid-level we are all in our own little rat race. We believe we're running against other rats, but we're only running ourselves in a circle almost. Uh, and so when you are finally getting that staff writer gig, it's almost like you vanquished boss number one and a second boss appears and says, welcome to level two. You thought this was the whole <laughs> game. No, this is just level one. So that's kind of what it is. Every time you bump up a level, you are entering a new level, but at the same time, that does mean a new rat race to the next gig and the next gig and the next gig. And obviously, if you're staffed, that does usually mean it's easier to get that second job or to get a job as a TV writer. However, that doesn't mean it is easy. It just means you have that relationship, hopefully positive uh, relationship with the people that you worked with so that if and when that show gets canceled, those people move on to other shows and then you build those relationships to get that other position. But again, just because that show got canceled, for example, and all those people moved to 
to other shows, that doesn't mean those shows have opportunities for you. In fact, most of the people that you've networked with on that show that just got canceled, most of them are probably not EPs with decision maker type capabilities to hire you. They're probably mid-level and lower level people. So they're not going to help you necessarily get you a job. And then the showrunner, maybe that you befriended, maybe they'll recommend you for a couple of positions. But uh, once again, it's uh, the luck of the draw there of if you're compatible with that particular show and that showrunner and so forth. So don't be uh, dissuaded. I feel like we're kind of down here and saying, well, it'll be hard forever. But uh, when it comes to the practical reality, it is tough to get that first job. It's also tough to get that second job and third job and, and so forth. That's why this entire podcast, we've been talking about the long game. We've been talking about a career as opposed to that one job, that one gig. You know, that's why samples, multiple samples are important. That's why networking overall, having a holistic perspective on your career as a TV writer and uh, outside of it is important. Having that mental health check, realizing that the right race never ends. So that's why maybe the best move is not to play or rather to pivot away from the right race and thinking of it as more of a journey than an end goal. So those are just ways of reframing the whole ethos of being a TV writer. Yeah, I think it's really important to kind of keep your ego in check too. You know, you can spend years grinding away as an assistant or something like that. And you finally get that first writing job. And then you realize that the next one's not coming right away. You're not just going to step out into the next thing. And maybe you have to go back and keep working as an assistant or work in production or drive Uber or whatever it happens to be. That's just the reality for a lot of people. It's very rare to just kind of string jobs along and be set for the rest of your career. So, you know, it's important to keep that in mind and not be kind of shocked if and when that happens. But to constantly, you know, be using that time to still be generating new material, to be meeting new people and keep putting things, you know, you need to keep planting seeds. It's very much a a feast and famine type thing, writing. Uh, Occasionally, you'll have a six to 12 months where you're just like, there's a million projects coming your way and everything's great. And you've got this freelance script and here you've got five showrunner meetings and all that kind of stuff. And then you'll have a period where you think that you're just never going to work again. And that can be really scary. But as long as you're constantly doing the work and planting those seeds, even though you might not see it right now in the short term, eventually long term, those relationships, that creative work that you've done, the projects that you have bubbling away, all those irons and fires, they will pay off. And that's actually why I love uh, the saying that opportunity is preparation meets luck, because it is true that you need to be ready for that luck to strike, that lightning to strike when you get that shorter meeting or you get that opening as writer's assistant or you get that agent that wants to read you or that executive that wants to meet with you. All those things matter at the point where you are prepared for those opportunities, for those moments. And so that does mean having the samples and so forth. That also means if you are staffed, you should be ready. Obviously, you should focus on the work at hand, but uh, if you know that it's ending soon, you should leverage that and be aware that, okay, what are the ways for me to guarantee myself or at least put me in a better position to get me a second job after that? Or whether that's uh, knowing your relationship with the shorter, whether that's working on a new sample, whether that's working on a new strategy with your representatives, all those things should be top of mind for you, whatever level you're at. And that's why people who are hugely successful in this industry, that's the kind of thing they're, that they're thinking of. Uh, if you look at any, I mean, obviously this is, you know, top of the top, but if you look at Chandra Rhimes, Ryan Murphy, Greg Berlanti, all 
all those people, I guarantee you that they always think strategically about the best way to position themselves on top of obviously the craft, on top of networking, on top of all those opportunities. And that's because they're ready for them and they put themselves in that position. All right. Well, then before we go, don't forget that we are now on Patreon. So if you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Paper Team via our Patreon page at paperteam.co slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You'll get access to our Paper Patron podcast, our cheat sheets, uh, the exclusive Paper Team mentorship updates just for our Patreon supporters. So get on it at paperteam.co slash Patreon, and we'll keep producing a great show like this for you every week. So thanks to our listeners for taking the time to tune in. You can get all the show notes for this episode at paperteam.co slash 197. And as we said at the top of the episode, don't forget that our 200th episode is coming in just a few days. So get on that at paperteam.co slash 200 and follow my Twitch channel at twitch.tv slash TV calling to get the notification. And also I'm on Twitter at TV calling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. If you have any thoughts, feedback, ideas for future episodes, you can always send them to ask at paperteam.co. And what are we doing next week? Next week will be our third uh, 2020 mentorship session with Ben Warner going over his detailed outline for the Pirate King. Awesome. We will see you then. We'll see you then.